Yeah, we're losing the the battery is fading so. Testing, yeah, that'll work. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see my group of the faithful who always come to hear our health discussions. It's great to see you all. So uh, when I was talking with Lynn uh, in the summer, actually, about this, we decided uh, a topic that always comes up in the discussions about the Affordable Care Act is the health of the population. And we never seem to really get around to that. So we decided to flip the order this year. So this. Uh, week I'll be talking about the poor health of the U.S. population, and next week we'll do an update on what's happening with the Affordable Care Act, which of course is back in the news again now that it appears that the president finally wants to work with Democrats maybe to save the law as opposed to destroy it. So, so that'll be next week. This week, as you see, the topic here is uh, improving the poor health of the population. And just to give you a sense of what I'm going to talk about, um, Really, we're in a, I would say, a full-blown health crisis with respect to a lot of the population at this point. And it really underscores the importance of addressing what are known as the, the social determinants of health. As I'll say in a moment, you know, those are the primary drivers of one's health status in life, uh, a fact that's been known for decades, but we're rediscovering it all over again as a country, and I'll say more about what that is in a moment. And it really underscores the need for uh, what is known in the industry as collective action. Uh, basically, it's getting multiple sectors in society to focus on the importance of health, not just the healthcare system. 
So we really need attention to health in the education setting, in terms of our housing policy, community development, and public policy broadly. Um, basically, I'll focus on several categories where we think we could make a very big difference. One is a category called adverse childhood experiences. I'll talk about that more in a moment. Early childhood education could do a lot to affect health later in life. Obviously, f our food policy, nutrition, physical activity, that could make a difference. Uh, we know we could make a huge difference in health by addressing incomes. And then there is a role for the health care system, uh, but uh, interestingly, it's not as big a role as you would think if we address all of these other factors. So if we ask what drives overall health status in life, uh, so what decides whether you're healthy at age 60 or whether you die before age 60, do you live to your full life expectancy or not? Um, decades and decades and decades of research has shown that you took a pie and said, here's your health status in life. What, ca what causes you to be at a particular level of health or not? Well, interestingly, a lot of people would say, oh, well, it's whether you've got access to good health care. And you say, yeah, that's about 20% of the equation, whether you have access to health care or not. What are the bigger drivers of your health status in life? Socioeconomic factors. What is your level of income? How much education did you get? These are very tightly correlated with your health status in life. The higher your income, the more likely it is that you're healthier, the more likely it is that you have a long lifespan, and the more, more income you have, it's also more likely that you're higher educated, and the more education you have also, the better health you tend to have. Now, this isn't true for everybody, Stuff happens in life, right? A, a person with a PhD can still get cancer. So it's not an automatic one-to-one -one correlation, but on the big averages, the higher income pop part of the population is going to be the, uh, the healthier part of the population. And this has been shown to be consistent across all societies. T about 10% of your health status is related to your physical environment. So did you, are you living next to a toxic waste dump? Or if you're a kid, is your school right next to a busy highway where you're inhaling a lot of ozone, which exacerbates your asthma, those kinds of factors. About 30% of your health status is due to your health behaviors. Are you smoking? Are you drinking? Are you exercising? Are you eating right? All of those things matter. And as you can imagine, this pie is a little bit artificial in a certain sense because for most people, all these things are blended together. So it might be the case that you are lower income, not that well educated, live in a part of DC without much access to healthy food, you end up ma mainly eating um, fast food, uh, maybe everybody around you is smoking or using substances, etc. So these things interact with each other. Uh, so you can think uh, on average, you know, the highest income, best educated people are more likely also to have the healthiest behaviors. So these things, as I say, build on each other. Um, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, approaches the same topic a slightly different way. They say, how can you influence health? And of course, sitting down there in Atlanta, that's their job. 
Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. How, what can we do to affect health? And they say the most important thing are those socioeconomic factors. That's the base of the pyramid. If you attack those, you can have the most leverage in influencing health. Move up the ladder a little bit and they say changing the context. This is basically creating a, a social environment where people are more inclined to make a healthy decision. So for example, don't have in schools uh, vending machines that are selling high calorie sodas, right? Uh, uh, put on the, as we know now, you go into a chain restaurant, it's listed what the calories are on the menus. That's, called, that's changing the context. So you're basically creating the ability for people to make healthy decisions. Then we get into long-lasting protective interventions. That's things like vaccines, right? You get a vaccine against a disease, you're probably going to be protected for a very long time. Then we get to clinical interventions, and this is where you could think of things like somebody, if you're a physician and somebody comes into your uh, office and they uh, uh, are still smoking, you can prescribe an anti-smoking cessation drug, for example. Or you can teach people uh, if you're uh, not eating well, you know, we're going to send you a to a nutritionist who's going to basically help you eat better. And then that ties up to the one at the top of the pyramid, which is counseling and education. Stop smoking. Eat right. Just drink, you know, if you're a woman, have one drink a day. Counseling and education. So you can see it's at the top of the pyramid, not because it's the most important intervention. It's actually the least important intervention and the least likely one to make a difference because we're all human beings, right? And we, you know, we know what we ought to do, we just don't do it. So telling us that we should do it doesn't help that much. So this is how the CDC, as I say, conceptualizes how you could really influence health. You start at the base of the pyramid and you address those socioeconomic factors. That will make the most difference. Now, this is a problem if you're at the CDC. Can you sit down there in Atlanta and redo incomes policy? No. Can you basically say we have to have uh, uh, all uh, kids from zero to three well taken care of by their families? No, right? But it's important for all of us to understand that if we really wanted a healthy population, this is the, the roadmap we would follow. So I mentioned the, this phrase, the social determinants of health. And as I say, decades and decades of research show that these are the factors that primary drive health. And you can see what they are. Income and income distribution. Do we have incomes more evenly distributed throughout the population? Education, a close second, and they're very tightly linked. Employment or unemployment obviously makes a difference. Early childhood development food insecurity, hunger or lack of access to healthy food, housing, um, social exclusion. And we know also from the research that if you're feeling excluded or marginalized, that will tend to undermine your health status. Um, access to health services does definitely make a difference, but you can see it's only one of these many factors. And then, of course, we know that there are differences in health status along gender lines, along racial lines, uh, are you Native American? The, the lowest life expectancy in our country is Native, Amer the Native American populations. Essentially, our Native American population life expectancy at birth is about on par of people in Africa. So that's uh, a, real, a real separate issue for us. Yeah. Uh, 
it, vaccines, I think, it a, it depends, uh, but the Indian Health Service, which takes care of a lot of health, not it's not the exclusive provider on Indian reservations, but it is a provider. That's pretty well provided. It's really, the Native American population is really undermined by all these other factors. Incomes in particular, social uh, and uh, behaviors, very high smoking rates on reservations, very high unemployment, very low incomes, a lot of alcohol abuse, a lot of fetal alcohol syndrome. Yeah, that's really what's driving that. So some, um, some jokesters up in Canada uh, tried to take this notion of social determinants and put it in a popular context. And you know if you read Prevention Magazine or something, it'll say five tips for a healthier lifestyle or 10 things you should do. So these are the 10 tips for better health, the social determinants version. Tip number one, don't be poor. If you can, stop. Stop being poor. If you can't, try not to be poor for too long. That's tip number one. Second, closely related, don't have poor parents because if you have poor parents, it's likely, very likely you'll be poor. Um, three, own a car. It will mean that you have money and you can drive out of the poor neighborhood that you live in, okay? <laughs> Number four, use that car if you live in a food desert to get to a neighborhood where you can get better food. Don't live in damp, low-quality housing. Don't work in a stressful, low-paid job. Practice not losing your job. <laughs> uh, be able to travel and de-stress your life. If you're jobless, claim all the benefits that you're entitled to. And don't live next to a busy major road or a polluting factory or have lead in your water as in Flint, Michigan. So this kind of makes the point, how, how much of this is in an individual's control, right? You know, it's not, right. <laughs> so it, it, as I say, it underscores these are the main drivers, and they're the, le the ones that people can least affect themselves. That's why we need society to step in. Now, because we're not stepping in as a society, what are we seeing in terms of the poor health of Americans? Well, the Institute of Medicine, now called the National Academy of Medicine, in uh, January several years ago put out this very important study. It's uh, U.S. health in international perspective, shorter lives, poorer health and basically said what is true. It was, this wasn't new research, they just kind of rounded up all the existing research and underscored that for many years Americans have been dying at earlier ages than almost all the other high-income countries. And not only are our lives on average shorter, but they are worse at every stage along the lifespan. So higher infant mortality rate, and as you know, we're, you know we, we rank 29th on the list of countries with low infant mortality rates. So we're pretty bad there. Uh, we have worse health in childhood and adolescence, middle-aged adults, all the way straight through to old age. Um, and this uh, graphic underscores that. This is basically what causes people to die before age 50 in the US versus other countries. And the gray bars are the average of all the other high-income countries, so all the Scandinavian countries, Australia, uh, the UK, uh, Germany, et cetera. All the other countries, and then the US is the red bar. So you can see, so this is for men. You can see we have higher rates of death for communicable diseases, 
uh, and nutritional conditions. So think about things like uh, diabetes, for example, as well as communicable disease, you know, uh, infectious disease and so on. Uh, Drug-related causes, you can see we have much, we, we're losing, and this is basically how many years of life do you lose before age 50? So you can see drug-related causes, we lose more years of life. Perinatal conditions, essentially uh, birth defects and things that happen in, uh, for young infants. Intentional injuries, that's gunshots, largely. Um, cardiovascular disease, non-communicable diseases, again, that's also uh, some diabetes ends up there. Unintentional injuries, that's largely traffic accidents. Uh, and then all-cause mortality, basically we have double the overall rate of death compared to all these other high-income countries before age 50, okay? So this is well before old age. And if you look at, uh, for, for women, it's similar, but of course different related to some things like maternal conditions. You can see up there, you see that little red bar? You can't even see a gray bar there. We have the highest maternal mortality rate of all of these countries. Uh, and again, similar all the way down uh, through to the bottom where again, almost double the rate of, of death, premature death among women relative to all these other countries. So that is the state of play. Um, we also are particularly seeing a trend of uh, premature death uh, in middle-aged white non-Hispanic men and women. Um, and this has been brought home by some very important research done by uh, Anne Case and Angus Deaton. Angus Deaton is a Nobel Prize winner in economics and Anne Case is his wife, uh, professor at Princeton, and they've done this series of studies now that has basically documented increasing death rates from drug and alcohol poisoning, suicide, chronic liver disease, cirrhosis, and the biggest effect of this happening in people with the least amount of education. Along with a lot of, uh, they report, these people report obviously that they've got poor health, mental health issues, depression, can't really conduct the abilities, the typical activities of daily life, walking, et cetera. And they have a lot of increased uh, chronic pain and lack of ability to work. If you look at this graph on the right side, you'll see one red line trending up and then a bunch of lines going down. So that is the US white death rate, the red line. And then you can see comparable populations in France, down, Germany, down, UK, down, Canada, down, Australia, down. This comparable population in all these other countries, the death rates are falling. In the US, they're rising. Now, um, this is, here's Ann Case and Angus Deaton here. They call these deaths of despair. And they say what's happening here is a longstanding process of cumulative disadvantage, meaning one disadvantage leads to another one, leads to another one, leads to another one, and the effects compound over time for people with less than a college degree. And it's due to things like job loss, uh, and low incomes leading to poor health in childhood, breakdown of marriage in a lot of communities, child rearing, lack of religious affiliation, uh, and uh, prescriptions for chronic pain have led to a lot of opioid uh, addiction and abuse. And, and as I say, it's just added fuel to the flame. Um, so they say, uh, and then if you look at where in the country is this happening the worst, 
Uh, it's the darker orange places, so you see West Virginia, right? Right down there at the bottom, um, uh, Mississippi, uh, uh, still bad in places like Oklahoma, et cetera, uh, very bad in Alaska. Um, so uh, concentrated uh, effect in some of the poorest parts of the country. And if I showed you another map that was the parts of the country that expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act or did not, it's the same map, right? So <laughs> those states have, you know, to the degree you can affect any of this by giving people access to health care, especially poor, poor people, those states have opted not to do that. Um, the, um, a, a lot of journalists have basically done a great job of chronicling how this plays out in individual lives. And the Washington Post has done some wonderful stories over the last couple of years looking at this. So here's a case in point. This person isn't dead yet, but you can see how, how closely she came. This is a 33-year-old woman. This was in a Post piece from a year ago. Uh, and her husband, living in Jasper, Alabama, She's in recovery from almost a 12-year addiction to uh, first uh, opioids prescribed for chronic pain. And you can imagine, you know, so she started getting prescriptions for opioids like when she was in her early 20s. Um, that led to an opioid addiction, which led to heroin use. Uh, her 30-year-old brother died of an overdose. Uh, she was able to get herself into recovery. She's working now a minimum wage job. At, uh, it's, it's Burger, not Bergen King. <laughs> Burger King, supporting a family of four on a on the and federal minimum wage is just below eight, eight bucks an hour, as you know. Uh, her husband has had to go to jail for an old conviction for robbing a pizza hut to get the money to buy drugs. Okay. She was. She would have been one of those deaths of despair uh, had she not gotten herself into recovery. Her brother was a arguably a death of despair. Um, now, this county that she lives in, the death rate for women, 35 to 44, has increased 170% since 1999. And a lot of it is this cumulative disadvantage building on each other. So that's a kind of a typical portrait of what seems to be going on in a lot of communities. Some of them have high school, at most high school, and very frequently not even completion of high school. Yeah. So um, incomes, as I mentioned earlier, are a big driver of health status in life. And as we see that the, um, uh, growing inequality in incomes in America, that is also leading to growing inequality in life expectancy. And the um, National Academy of Sciences did this really important study, came out now two years ago, and they looked at two groups of people, the people who turned 50 in 1980, so of course they were people born in 1930, right? They turned 50 in 1980, and then they looked at the people who turned 50 in 2010. So those people were born in 1960. 30 years later. And they looked at the difference between men and women. Uh, if you look at the people who were in the top fifth of the income distribution over that time, those, comparing those two groups, people in the top fifth of the income distribution got seven more years of life expectancy over that period. So roughly speaking, life expectancy went from uh, the 
well, it depends on whether you're looking at life expectancy at birth, but let's say you're looking at life expectancy at birth, that went from the, the low 60s, mid 60s, up till the high 60s, almost 70, over that, that period, uh, that 30 year period. Um, if you look at people in the bottom of the income distribution for men, they didn't get any gains in life expectancy. It was frozen over that period. If you look at women in those two periods, the women in the top fifth of the income distribution got six years of additional life expectancy. In the bottom fifth, the women lost four years of life expectancy. <clears throat> and then in the next lowest fifth of income, they lost two years of life expectancy. So what this tells you is that the country is sort of splintering apart, in, uh, not just on income, but on health status and life expectancy. And wealthier people are living longer and longer and longer, and poorer people are living less long. And so you put this story together with the deaths of despair and the parts of the country that are economically disadvantaged, and you begin to see where we really have this vicious cycle going on now, uh, where parts of the country are just doing very poorly. And I didn't include this study, but there was a new study that came out about a, a week and a half ago where a um, professor uh, at, at Brown looked at uh, poor health status and how people voted in the presidential election. And essentially there's almost a one-to-one -one correlation. The counties with the worst health status voted almost universally for Trump uh, and wealthier communities tended, the odds were much higher that people voted for Clinton. So you see sort of that gap uh, opening up as well. Um, now, a another really interesting study by uh, this fellow, Rod Shetty, um, basically took the same equation, just came at it a slightly different way, made the same conclusions that the higher income is associated with longer longevity or life expectancy, and this gap is growing over time. But what he also showed is that it's not always the same dynamic every place in the country. So Birmingham, Alabama, it's worse. That is to say, as your income goes up, your life expectancy goes out, and as your income goes down, life expectancy goes down. But it's not the same trend line in Birmingham, in the upper left, as it is in Cincinnati, as it is in Tennessee, Knoxville, Tennessee, or as it is in Tampa. Uh, so what he deduces from that is that local policies make a big difference in this as well. And even though this general trend holds, if you're doing something on a local level to ameliorate it, you can get, uh, you can soften the effects. So if you're in a place that has a minimum wage of $15 an hour, the effect isn't going to be quite as bad as in a place that is still with the federal minimum wage of just over seven bucks an hour. Um, so it's a reminder that we're, we're, we're not helpless here, right? We, we, you can do things to affect this uh, on a local level. Uh, we could certainly do it on a national level, but if you think the national government can't act, local governments can act. So what can we do? How can we act? Um, one thing that we could do, and this uh, was driven home in spades by this book that came out a couple of years ago, The American Healthcare Paradox. Uh, and, and as you see, why spending more is getting us less. If you look around the world, countries spend a lot of money on health care, as we do here in the U.S. You know, on the federal level, we support Medicare, we support Medicaid, we have subsidies for the 
Affordable Care Act. Uh, we spend a lot of money on health care, and then a lot of money is spent on what we, you would call social services, education, housing assistance for low-income people, uh, et cetera, subsidies for women, infants, and children, um, uh, food stamps. Th those are things you can think of as social services. Most countries on the, around the world spend twice as much on social services as they spend on health care. The United States spends twice as much on health care as it does on social services. And you can see the effect right there. That's us, uh, basically. <coughs> and this graph is hard to read, but basically the, um, the countries with the, big, the taller lines are spending more on health care than on social services. Um, now, we're not alone. There are a couple of other countries that do things the way we do. But if you look across the big averages, most countries are doing it the other way. So we could say, hmm, maybe we've got this backwards. And if you think about it, the way we kind of run our policy in America is if you get really sick uh, in life, and, and as I've already established, the poorer you are, the more likely you are to have the worse behaviors and to get sick. What happens is we kind of leave you on your own, and then when you're really sick, we throw you into the hospital, right? Or we get, finally get you health care. Uh, or if you're mentally ill, we throw you in jail <laughs> or prison. And as you know, probably a third of the people, at least in the federal prison system, are seriously mentally ill. So that's what we, what we do. We kind of leave you on your own until you're really sick, and then we give you lots of health care, we put you in jail. Another way to do it would be don't let all those things happen, right? So that people don't end up in the most expensive healthcare system in the world, uh, not to mention the most expensive prison system in the world, right? So we, we might be able to do things a little bit differently. If we were to decide to do that, what would we do? First of all, we would focus on early childhood. And let me just give you a couple of examples. There's been a long-running study called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. It's known as the ACEs study. And it started off years ago uh, with a collaboration between CDC and Kaiser Permanente. Kaiser Permanente now has 12 million enrollees across the U.S., many here, of course. They, they were originally founded in, in uh, California. So they got 17,000 members of their plans to participate in this study. It started in 1995. And since that time, it's, it's now close to 60 scientific articles have been published out of the study. And it clearly links early childhood instances of childhood abuse or neglect to uh, health conditions later in life, depression, heart disease, chronic illness, et cetera, and even cancer. And more than two-thirds of the study participants reported that they had gotten harmed in life by at least one adverse childhood experience, psychological abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, et cetera. Now, um, why? How, how would that possibly work? Well, we don't know, but we have some scientific theories about it. And more or less, the thinking is that if you have, if you look at the bottom of this pyramid here, so you have an adverse childhood experience, you're a little kid, you're a victim of psychological abuse. Uh, you maybe, you, maybe you grow up in a family with a parent who's a raging alcoholic, is very angry, maybe is beating you up, 
maybe you are a victim of sexual abuse. Our theory is that that disrupts neurodevelopment in children at a young age. Um, and, uh, and the reigning theory is that because when you're in a position of stress, your body exerts a lot of stress hormones, including cortisol. And maybe it's that toxic stress that disrupts your, the development of your brain. So because your brain is being disrupted in its development as a child, you develop um, some various impairments. Uh, your, th your thinking is impaired, your social interactions are impaired, your emotional interactions are impaired. As we know, the brain is one big chemical factory, right? So basically, if you're poisoning the chemical factory, guess what? Other things go awry as well. Because you're impaired, as you get older in life, you adopt riskier behaviors. So you're more inclined to have uh, substance abuse. Um, and we know, for example, people who are, uh, uh, you know, I, I think there was a study done at one point that showed that of women in treatment for various addictions, about half of them report having been sexually abused as children. So we know that there's a, a, a dynamic that unfortunately is untriggered there. Because you would uh, adopt these riskier behaviors, you're more inclined to experience diseases and disabilities, and that will dispose you to early death. So that's the theory about how these adverse childhood experiences play out in life. So since we know these uh, ACEs, as it were, are fairly common, unfortunately, um, and the screening uh, indicates this, um, this is a basically a, a study that was done of a, of a basically of a population of kids. And essentially, it, it, sh it showed not only are these common, but it's also if you have more of them, you're even more impaired. So there's what they say in medicine, a dose response curve. The higher dose you get of an ACE, the worse your outcome is. So you can see there were kids who were reporting five or more of these harms, um, recurrent physical or emotional abuse, uh, sexual abuse, alcohol or drug abuse in the household, uh, having an incarcerated household member, a uh, household member who's chronically depressed, mother treated violently. And you know you, you can't really play amateur psychologist here, but just think about what, we, what we've learned in the past week about Stephen Paddock, that who, the shooter in Las Vegas, whose father was in prison for bank robbery and a whole list of other crimes. And the, the mother kept that from the kids as right apparently as they were growing up, so you can't utterly say they were he was a victim of ACE, but just think about the psychological impact. Sooner or later, he figured that out, right? What what impact did that have on somebody like that? Uh, who knows? Adverse childhood experiences, ACE. Yeah. Uh, no, that's a kid witnessing the mother being abused by the, by the father and what the effect that that has on the child in terms of creating this toxic stress. So, um, and again, multiple studies have underscored the higher the A score, the more likely you are to be a smoker in uh, later life. Uh, the more likely you are to be a smoker, the more likely you are to have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Uh, if you had a, a score of four or more harms, the more likely you are to be depressed. And of course, suicide. Uh, essentially, uh, basically a 12-fold increase in suicide attempts based on uh, rising exposure of ACEs. 
So since we know this, and it's an incontrovertible scientific fact, you'd think we would, might do something about it. Well, slowly but surely, little pockets around the country are. Uh, this is a clinic that is out in San Francisco, uh, the Bayview Child Health Center. And they start by just screening kids and parents uh, who bring their kids in for health care. And uh, this woman, Nadine Burke-Harris, did a study in 2011, and she found that two-thirds of the kids who come into the clinic have at least one of these types of trauma affecting them. Uh, and uh, she did some further studies. The kids who had no ACEs had almost no learning issues, uh, but basically the kids who had ACEs, at least half of them had learning issues. So reading difficulties, um, dyslexia even, uh, so it just tells you you can see these effects early on in kids and, of course, higher rates of obesity as well. So since we now have at least screening about it, uh, we, we're getting a better understanding, at least in some situations. And the, then the question is, what would you do about it? Well, there is, there are people theorize there are a number of things you could do about it. First of all, you could pass some kind of legislation that would mandate this screening, which it's not mandatory now, it's voluntary. The American C Academy of Pediatrics recommends that all pediatricians do this, about half of them do. So you could make it a law. You could change the organizational practices. You could make every pediatrician <laughs> practice, pediatrics practice do this. You could build coalitions and networks, educate providers again, promote community education, you, know, you could make parents and others aware of it. And what some of the additional studies have found is that if a parent has experienced an ACE, a parent is very likely to commit ACEs on their children. So, but, you know, most parents don't want to do that. They just don't know how to do anything else. So parent education supports could be very important and strengthening individual knowledge and skills, reaching out to families and educating them about this. All of that could be very helpful. As you know, it, not much of it goes on. Uh, but we, if we decided as a society that we wanted to attack this, we know we have some tools that we could use. Um, related is the whole issue of early childhood education. Um, there were two major studies done, uh, very old studies now, uh, back in the 60s and early 70s, or that's at least when they started. Um, and one of them is called the, was the Perry Preschool Study, and it was actually in Michigan. Basically, they took some three and four-year-olds and they gave them this radically enhanced, for the time, preschool education program. And back in the 60s, as you know, that was pretty unheard of, right? Not that many kids went to preschool back then, but that's so the, they just waded in, created this program. And they've been following these kids ever since. At age 40, the kids who got this ramped up program had 42% higher incomes than a control group of kids who did not get it from the same community. Uh, and they were about 26% less likely to be on any form of welfare because of, because of that. So, and that is a, was a definitive study that showed the if clear effect of this enhanced uh, education program at age three or four. Okay, so that was in the, you know, we basically had the results started in the 60s, so by the early 2000s we knew clearly at age 40 this effect was real. Um, 
Another a similar study was the Carolina Abecedarian study. And this may be hard to read, but basically this was another controlled experiment started in 1972 looking at the same topic, the benefits of early childhood education. Almost all the kids in this study were African American. This is in North Carolina. Uh, they looked at what happened to these kids 30 years later. They were four times more likely to have graduated from a four-year college. They were more likely to be uh, consistently employed. They were five times less likely to be on welfare or other forms of public assistance. And they all uh, had longer periods of education and they delayed becoming parents by two years, which meant that they had more time to establish themselves in their careers and earn more incomes. So again, just incontrovertible evidence that the thing that made the difference was this enhanced early childhood education. Now, both of these people have written multiple articles, statistically and substantially significant effects on the health and healthy behaviors of their participants. And what they said is interesting. It's clear that these kids all, as they got older, had more education and higher incomes, but they also had what they identified as improved childhood traits. What does that mean? As little kids, as they went through elementary school, they were better self-regulated. They had higher levels of cognition. They were less likely to smoke in high school. Uh, and they were predisposed to have more physical activity later in life. So you can begin to see the positive dynamics playing out even earlier in life that predispose them to better health later in life. Now, the clear conclusion from that is by whatever pathway, whether it's getting people to be higher income and better educated, whether it's these better childhood traits that lead to better traits in adulthood, it just clearly matters. If you do early child education, it will improve incomes, education, and health. Now, what are we doing about it? 41 states have state-funded pre-K, or had them as of 2014. But only nine of those served more than half of all the four-year-olds in the state. Uh, and of course, as we know, even in Maryland, it's only been in the last uh, four years that we've had early childhood education at the public schools. Uh, only three states, uh, as you see there, had truly universal pre-K programs, and that's four, age four. The evidence says we should be doing this at age three, <laughs> right? And basically, be at the 